0: is pop psych 101
1: hello and welcome back to pop psych 101 i am licensed therapist ryan engelstad here as always with my co-host and beautiful producer mike graham i'm glad that you
0: finally acknowledged what has been left unsaid all this time well, so thank you well, I mike, the, that. the
1: people don't know you know really what we look like i would say most of the time
0: so I think we need to correct that actually well we were actually talking about and maybe people can like write to us and let us know what they want us to do. We were talking about doing like a different cover art or something and doing like a picture of us and then Ryan suggested maybe instead of a picture do like a cartoon of us. So I don't know which way to go on that.
1: Well yeah, we have a lot of options and but I do think um giving the listeners a better <laughs> idea of who they're listening to is is a fun idea so we'll look out for that in the next couple weeks maybe
0: yeah we'll post some pictures but uh but today yeah uh what
1: what are we doing today ryan well mike today we are talking (laughs) about what do you have in store for us (laughs) oh man well you know we we've talked about doing some lighter stuff but today is not going to be that day no we we decided to follow up our very intense episode on eating disorders with a very intense episode about addiction
0: yeah, another intense, to the point where we even had a small discussion last night of pulling the brakes and pushing this one off a week and doing something different this week to break it up. But then it was just like, we got to do it. It's super important. Let's just, let's just do this one right now.
1: Yeah. So this one being a beautiful boy, one of the reasons is that it's awards season. So over the next couple of weeks and months, we're going to try to hit the movies and shows that are being recognized for their excellence. That's right. Specifically the ones obviously for us that have, you know, mental health connections. And being that we haven't covered an episode or a movie or a show or a book really that delves deep into addiction, we thought what better time than to cover this movie that's based on a book. Right. That just got recognized for a bunch of Golden Globe nominations.
0: Well, as far as addiction goes, it's kind of been hanging in the air and there's a really great reason why it's been hanging in the air. And it was like, should we do it really quickly? Or should we wait a long time to like cover addiction in depth? And Ryan, you worked you worked as like an addiction specialist or therapist for like quite a while, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, out of uh, undergrad. And I would say for the first, you know, six or eight years in my career in mental health. I focused either specifically in addiction or in dual diagnosis, which is just addiction plus um, mental health issues. So, So, yeah, I
0: figured you would have quite a lot to say about this one.
1: Well, yeah. So and obviously we'll get into the specifics of this movie. But so as I mentioned, I worked in addiction right out of college and then, you know, for several years as I sort of built up my clinical experience. And as it happens now, presently, I do not work in addiction. Both through choice in some ways and through circumstance. The the place where I happen to work right now is not licensed to treat addiction, so I don't treat uh, people with addiction disorders. But it's also that was also a choice in in deciding to work there because the addiction field is one of the highest fields of burnout, you know, for therapists.
0: Hmm. And I, I'm well, not, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's very true. And, and you know, in, in some ways, not to compare the therapist experience with the patient's experience, but for a lot of the same reasons that these problems are cyclical, you and and deadly, you know, in many cases, right. the, the most deadly circumstances that you'll be working with as a therapist. And that's the, that's experiences that I had. I have worked with patients who, not while I worked with them, but after, you know, you unfortunately, sometimes find out that people didn't make it for one reason or another. So right. so it makes it it's probably I mean, hard on you, even so, yeah. so those are experiences that I've had. and and it's not to say that I don't think I could work with people who have problems with addiction, but I know for myself that that there are people perhaps better suited or who have more expertise, or even in some cases, as as you can ask people who go into treatment for addiction that sometimes they look for people uh therapists who have their own recovery experience. I do not and and that's that's something that sure um for a lot of people that I worked with with addiction was sort of like a sticking point. So, you know, it's something that I I decided that it was better off at least for now, um not something that I'm specializing in. So, you know, and what so then watching this movie brought back a lot of those reasons and it's interesting cuz the timing in which I stopped working with people in addiction dovetailed exactly to when I became a father. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. So watching this movie, and we'll get into it more specifically, but yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There are, there are lots of reasons why being a father now.
0: More than professionally. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Addiction is like the last thing I want to think about on a day-to-day basis. It's just devastating. And we're going to talk about why, specifically in this movie.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that. We've talked about it a little bit, but I think it's good for any listeners to kind of know that that you've had some like pretty good experience here. So so I think, um, I don't know, I think we should just get into it, and I think it's going to be an intense one, but uh, hopefully pretty important.
1: No question. One of the most important mental health issues in our, our world today, so... I'm happy to finally be covering it I'm happy to be talking about some of my own experiences as a therapist in this issue, this area and uh, with that, let's get to it All right, let's do it
0: Yeah, I've seen a few hundred bucks Why don't we just have
1: lunch and talk? We can do that, right? Hmm. Hmm. How's Karen and, and the kids? Okay They ask about you
0: is there step up next week? And I know they'd love you. Your uh, you're guilt tripping me, all right? No, I'm just, just saying. Feel that horrible they... about myself. I know they wanted you to be there. That's all. I'm sorry, Dad. Um, I just need some money. All right? So, please, just give me and- some. Money. Where does this end? This is, I gotta see this one through. This is kind of working out for me right now. I got five days sober. It doesn't look like it's working you, out, Nick. Oh, it doesn't I, look like it's working out? So what, no. the therapy, huh? You can come home. No, that we'll would Make it work, please, Nick. Please. I've been doing some research. Been doing research, you gotta no, be kidding me, okay. Dad you think that you have this under control Mm -hmm. and i understand how scared
1: you are i understand why i do things it doesn't make me any different all right i'm attracted to craziness and you're just embarrassed because i was like you know i was like this amazing thing like your special creation or something and you don't like who i am now
0: yeah who are you nick this is me dad here this is who i am Today we are covering Beautiful Boy, a 2018 film based on the true events depicted by a book of the same name written by the father of the story, David Sheff, starring Steve Carell as David Sheff, Timothée Chalamet as his son, Nicholas Sheff, Amy Ryan as Nick's mother, Vicki Sheff, and Maura Tierney as Nick's stepmother, Karen Barber. Nick, having just graduated from high school and accepted into every college he applies for with the hopes of growing his already strong talent for writing, is headed to rehab for drug addiction. His dad and stepmom are mostly unaware of the extremes Nick has begun to take his drug habits to and assume he has mostly been abusing marijuana when in reality, Nick has been using methamphetamines for at least a few months among many other things. This is just the beginning of a terrifying and heartbreaking true story. Unfortunately, this tale is well known. Nick spends the next few years of his life in and out of different rehabs, always with the promise that he will stop taking drugs. He is desperately trying to fill a hole in his life that even he can't pinpoint. There is no linear path to this story. There is only his dad standing behind him with unconditional love at every turn and every failure. We don't get to see Nick smile into the sunset and beat this demon. We don't get to see his father, David, rewarded for all the years of worry and sleepless nights. In the end, we have a story of love no matter what. We are left wondering if Nick will recover. And the truth is, it's made clear that Nick's recovery will be a complicated journey and David will be there with him the whole way.
1: Well, thank you for that, Mike. Yeah. It's it's a tough movie to summarize, so I give you credit for that because you know thank you. both because of the sort of jumpy, uh, nonlinear aspect of the way this movie was presented, but also just yeah. addiction in general doesn't have like a clean storyline. So Yeah, there's yeah. no
0: like one, two, three acts about it. You That's know, right. it's especially being based on a true story. It's a, yep. it's almost like a biopic in that sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Very much so. Yeah, it's based on the dad's book. Actually, a lot of it was based on the son, Nick's book as well, which I want to say is called Tweak.
0: Yeah, there's one called Tweak and there's one called like Fix. <laughs>
1: yeah, he's he's written a couple of books that have gone on to be pretty well known as well. So obviously credit to real life Nick Chef who has gone on to obviously to do some things for himself. But we're focusing on this movie in particular.
0: Right. And uh, it was it was a really tough one, Ryan. <laughs> it was a really tough one. I don't know how would you get through it. How was it
1: for you? <laughs> well, as I mentioned up top, you know, this is something that I have a lot of experience with. And on one hand, it was just like reading an evaluation story or a background story of a lot of different patients that I worked with when I was working in addiction, right? And you know, in that way, I was just either telling uh, the dad don't do that or telling the, the kid uh, Nick to, to don't do that. So I just found myself saying like, almost like I was, if I was watching a horror movie.
0: Right. You're like, no. Yeah.
1: Oh, just over <laughs> and over and over and over again. So, so that was what it was like for me.
0: <laughs> well, for, I, I guess, you know, <laughs> I mean, I have a million questions and I'm sure you have a million answers just, just for like me watching this movie. And we've talked about this before on our show. And both of us, I think, have reactions, and I think most parents do, when you see a story that's like, one of the central themes of this is the father-son thing, you know, child-parent sort of story arc, I guess. Yep. But, whew, yeah, it was tough. It, you know, I mean, this one had me tearing up by like a minute 30, and then bawling by like 45, and then just crying the rest of the way through, so.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and- I will say, you know, the the I like this movie in particular because it is about the family and the dad in particular, yeah, as much if not more than it's about uh, Nick, the the son who's actually going through the addiction. I think that's really useful if if you're a family member who who has or knows someone that's going through addiction. This is a really, I think, excellent portrayal that that you can watch to to kind of get some some insight into. And we're gonna talk about all that stuff. So. But I like yes. I like that it's that perspective because a lot of the times you'll see you know addiction stories just yeah focus it's just on following the stuff.
0: patient yep. yeah just following the patient through everything and and this one yeah you got to see the other side of it and yeah so it was kind of neat but uh, so like this story starts off and it's I guess basically the beginning even though it does jump through time back and forth uh, in a, kind of a neat way but it starts off and like Nick is graduating from high school uh, clearly looking healthy he's definitely starting to experiment. He's he's got like a joint in the car. His dad and him are very, very close to the point where he can even show the joint to his dad, David. And I just have like I have a lot of concerns just like straight out of the gate with their relationship. So, I mean, I'm just I'm just wondering. So, like, when you're watching it, what you immediately thought, because that's like the first thing they presented was the relationship.
1: Yes. And, you know, I struggled a little bit with the nonlinear stuff. And obviously, it was like for artistic effect, jumping back and forth between young and present and, and older um, Nick, that's the son. But we definitely see this relationship being established of, you know. Oh, oh and Ryan. Yeah.
0: It was also a struggle because uh Steve Carell's beard remained the same no matter what timeline it was.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the only thing that changed was the actor portraying Nick the son um yeah. or like how long his hair was. So yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was hard to follow sometimes like wait, is he is this a treatment before the last treatment or after or are we up to yeah. the present day? So that was hard for me, I got to say that was a difficult way to follow the story, but nonetheless, you know, the relationship that we see of him initially of just sort of experimenting but then we come to find out through the the sort of development of the plot that you know by the time he was graduating high school he had been using alcohol and drugs for seven years
0: yeah and that's that's true to life uh even like to the real life he'd in real life nick started using when he was like 11 years old yep he said he'd started drinking you know he'd been drinking and using like marijuana for a couple of years pot weed and but then he kind of confesses they, they actually get him into rehab very, very close to the beginning. And he confesses that he had started using meth. And I guess this goes as to the relationship part of it, too, was as close as David thought that him and Nick were. He didn't know, obviously, this entire side to him. So I mean I'm just wondering like what did you think about the scene like before the rehab when they smoked the joint together? Yeah, and then what it, what were you thinking when the dad acted so surprised about everything after they smoked a joint together? Yeah,
1: yeah. So and and we know from interviews and stuff with David Chef in real life that this is something that he that did happen in real life and it was not something that he was proud of, but he acknowledged happened. And I think you know and frankly in working with people who use and abuse drugs that this is something that happens you know parents want to and I should say some parents want to be the sort of cool casual you can drink as long as it's in the house you know I can know you're smoking weed as long as it's in this certain circumstances and obviously this is the relationship that David and his son had that you know he feels he knows his son very well so he doesn't really think it's such a big deal to smoke right. one joint with him not it's his knowing, son. He's yeah. got
0: trust, like tons yeah. of
1: trust for him. Yep, absolutely.
0: As a professional, like where do you, I'm just wondering, like where do you sit on, on that fence of like the parenthood friendship line?
1: For me, parents have to set boundaries. Whatever those boundaries are, it's important that those boundaries be consistent. And I think another thing that David acknowledges, not necessarily in this movie, but in other material, is that he talked with Nick about his own drug use. So to that extent, sort of again, sort of being very friendly and sort of normalizing, almost like, yeah, I mean, it's okay if you smoke weed, it's okay if you drink, even to a certain extent. Yeah. And I think that establishes, you know, if if a child hears that perspective too young and that sort of behavior becomes too accepted, too normal, it can be very easy for that adolescent brain to kind of latch onto that, not just as something fun. But as something could be used to help them de-stress, something could be used to uh, help them be comfortable and socialize. So that's why there's a lot of risk here. I think, you know, one of the biggest statistics that I try to tell parents and even kids, you know, who are even just casually smoking weed, right, is that, you know, the, the brain is not done developing until about age 25.
0: Which is crazy to think about. Yep. It's like you're, you're most people are like well a lot of people are like married and having kids and yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah. Absolutely right. So, you know, whether it's smoking weed, drinking cigarettes, you know, anything, anything that you're using and abusing up until that age of 25 can have a real impact on your brain. And that's one of the things that I like about this movie is that they do go into a little bit of the brain science and how devastating it can be to, you know, brain growth and brain development specifically with crystal meth, but but even just drugs in general is, can really inhibit growth and even learning to a certain extent. So to kind of get back to this relationship, if you normalize, you know, and and want to be cool with your kids drinking or smoking at a young age or let's be honest, illegally in most states at least. Right. Well, yeah, currently. Yeah. You're you're opening them up to the possibility for them to be on this path. And I don't I don't want to go down the whole road of like like what's um, right or wrong? Or... Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, because every parent's going to make their own decision and every parent right. has their own experience. We could talk about gateway drugs and all these kinds of things, but the reality is if there's a situation, and I and I really want to talk about the, the sort of family dynamic as well, if there's a situation, an opportunity where a kid might take advantage of the sort of looseness of a rule, like, hey, you can drink as long as it's in the house or you can smoke as long as you tell me you are, then that just provides this opportunity for then it to go, you know, past the, well, the real point. stretching. Yeah, exactly. Cause that's what, that's what kids do. It's what adolescents do. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's a word of caution. Well, I'll leave it at that.
0: Well, I'm wondering is so if a parent has drug, history where they did drugs or whatever in the past. I mean, a lot of people have. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and s- sometimes and not always, it's not this horrible thing for everybody. So for some people, it's a life destroyer. For some people, it's just like this thing they did a couple times. But let's say a parent, it wasn't this big, horrible deal for them. They didn't, you know, go down a really dark path with it. Should it be a thing they like totally hide from their kids? And obviously you just said. We shouldn't be, you know, glamorizing it and saying, hey, you know, and trying to be buddy-buddy about it because that's going to shed it in a light where it it looks like, hey, this is so much fun. I should try it too. But should we go as far as to pretend like it never happened to us?
1: So I want to emphasize a couple things about this. Um, You have to kind of know when a child can handle this kind of information and the context in which you share that information with them. So, let's say let's make up a hypothetical situation. You catch your son or daughter who's in high school with weed or with, you know, a hidden bottle of vodka or whatever, you know, things that happen all across the country. If you use that opportunity to tell to then tell your kids, "Oh, you know, I was like you once. I smoked weed, I drank." That's not the time for that conversation. Right? because what you're doing is you're you're sort of trying to almost like inauthentically connect and and Mike we were teenagers not that long ago you know if our parents tried tried to do that we'd just be like okay mom or dad like sure you did you're not well, you're not if, buying into that
0: well what if they were doing it in the in a way okay i know that you're drinking and i did it too but here's the deal like okay i did this too I know where you're at because I did it. I know that you shouldn't be like that. I know they're presenting themselves as what, you know, a teenager would go, well, you're a hypocrite, man. Yeah. But (laughs) because we all live in the seventies.
1: So here's a different way for me to answer the question. It's not about the parents' experiences. The best thing you can do for your kid when, if you catch them is to try to connect with their emotional experience, why they're making this decision and not you, judging them or trying to correct them or punish them. That's, that's worst case scenario. Cause that, then you're setting up this pattern of, well, okay, now if I want to keep drinking or smoking, I can't get caught, which is exactly what happened with Nick and, and David Chef. Nick had to become more and more secretive about his drug use. So he didn't have to have these super uncomfortable conversations with his dad every time. Right. Versus, so versus, we know that Nick's parents, David and Vicky. The
0: biological mother.
1: Yes, uh, Nick's biological mother, divorced when he was around age four. So if I can get on my soapbox for just one second, (laughs) it would be...
0: Can I put a fun sound here?
1: Sure, whatever the soapbox Uh, sound is.
0: It's going to be the Mario sound. Does
1: that mean (laughs) jumping up to a soapbox? Sure.
0: Yeah,
1: I don't know. Here it goes. So... Here from my soapbox, and this is for any anyone um, who's married or thinking about getting married, or people who are already married and parents, if you get divorced, please just give your kids an opportunity to be evaluated or to go into therapy. Just give them the chance. They may not need it, and then that would be fine. But they may need it, and they may need it very badly, even if it seems like, in the case of Nick, he still has good grades, he's captain of the water polo team, everything seems fine. That may very well be the case, but as we also know about Nick, he was really probably stuffing a lot of the feelings that he had, whether about the divorce or the custody or the sort of high expectations of his parents. So as a result, all of these feelings were getting stuffed down and creating this hole within himself that he was not. Coping with very well at all.
0: And he doesn't seem to know what the hole is, you know, because probably because he didn't have someone to talk to when he needed it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So now I can step down from my soapbox and reverse sound. (laughs) So I step down and say, you know, I wish that when these these interactions between David and his son were first portrayed, that there was a an attempt on David's part to connect with Nick's emotional experience and not the fact that he was using a drug or experimenting with drugs right at the beginning yeah as as soon as it's apparent
0: and that's what I was thinking about so so basically after we get done realizing what's going on with Nick towards the beginning of the movie he's basically in rehab like right away yep and i mean a bunch of stuff just pops up for us i think First off, there's what you just said. They sit down and you see the reaction, I think, that nobody wants to have from their parent when, A, you've done anything wrong, but especially something like this, where it's something that deep down, you know, is being driven almost uncontrollably. In Nick's situation, this isn't just a party thing. They even show him doing this, like, alone, almost exclusively. And the first reaction he gets from David is basically disappointment because he's not, this isn't, he says, this isn't who we are. Right. I mean, is this one of the moments where you said like, no, don't. Oh know? yeah.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. Because it, you're, you're implying a lot of judgment and look, we, we know from background that both David Chef and Vicky Chef, Nick's biological mother, We're, we're successful professionals. So, you know, whether it was just implied pressure or sort of internalized pressure on Nick, he doesn't need to hear the, these sort of judgmental statements from his father. He already feels this, this way, like crappy about himself. So to have these conversations with his dad, is just reinforcing over and over and over again that he's not good enough that he's not doing what he quote unquote should be doing, so it's just like it's it's yeah, this is like a horror movie for a therapist where it's just over and over again, it's like, nope, don't say that, oh no, now I know what's gonna happen next and that and that's what it does i mean
0: so so it's like for you, you're watching it and you're like, just run, why are you walking? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> don't go down that hole, yep. The other thing that came up in in this area was the rehab they went to, and I and I just had questions, like big questions, come sure. up here for me yep. was first thing. So they're taking Nick to his what seems to be his very first rehab before they even really know what's going on with Nick, and he's getting his first intake. And David, the father, sitting down talking to I guess the intake counselor or, or whoever's doing the paperwork. And she gives him a bunch of facts, and to me, they just seemed insane. Before I even got to the like middle of the movie, where you hear the more solid facts, mm-hmm. she she says to him these things. She says a lot of patients aren't here by choice, and they have just as much chance as anybody. And I went, "What? I don't think that's true." I mean, this is just an outsider going. That can't be true. Uh, then I said, then she said. Our success rate is as high as eighty percent, and I just went, Psh. I that I mean again that can't be true, and uh, and then and then she she talked a lot about like NA and AA, and I guess I just had like big questions about those three things and and what you thought and whether they were accurate or or what.
1: Sure. So taking that one one step at a time. And I know parents and patients want to hear that success rate, but any treatment program is not gonna wanna tell you the the real true to life success rate of recovery from addiction. Because as we learn later in the movie, you know, from the brain scientist, the neurologist, I think. Um
0: I, I call them I call them brain scientists. Sure.
1: <laughs> the uh the sort of specialist that David Chef goes to see he says specifically with crystal meth, the success rate is more like 8%, which is like you wouldn't go to a treatment program that told you their success rate is 8%. We'd be like, okay, thank you for your time, and you would leave. So, you know, any program that I've worked at either says point blank, we don't share or publicize a success rate because it's not useful information, or they will be honest, which is which is closer to what the lower end of that program said, which is like 30%. I think that's a pretty representative success rate for most addiction programs.
0: Okay. So they said, they did say low end 20%. So you would say that's probably close to accurate, but when they're, when they're touting the, the 80%, that's kind of, that's just blowing up the numbers.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of manipulation or, or small sample size being used there.
0: Okay. And the other one was when they say patients aren't here by choice and they have as much chance as anybody. I I'm wondering, I mean, to me, I would think if I had a problem, even just thinking about my own issues, if somebody took me somewhere and I didn't want to go there, it would be
1: I would be rebellion. So that's true. There is certainly a, a fair amount of rebelling that goes on for people that are not voluntarily entering treatment. But this is actually one statement that I do agree with that Whether you are entering treatment voluntarily or against your will because of the state or your family or whomever, you do still have the same, as the person states, opportunity for success. That doesn't necessarily mean that the sort of statistics would play out that way. But especially, you know, when I first started working in the field, I worked in one program that had people that resided in that treatment program up to six months. So you think about, how long you would resist treatment for (laughs) you know if you didn't if you weren't there by choice you might resist for a couple days a couple weeks maybe at a certain point you get to a place where either you're going to decide to leave and and risk the legal consequences or you're going to accept the fact that you were there and probably try to get whatever you can out of it so that's why at least for me I've, i've seen real evidence of this that even people who are forced into treatment can absolutely still succeed.
0: I mean, that's good to know, because if you're in a situation and you're wondering whether that's true, you know that there's still a chance for success, even if the person you're trying to get to go is, is you know, screaming and kicking on the way in, I guess.
1: Yep. But also, I, I do want to talk about the NA and um, AA okay. and Al-Anon stuff, because that is a, a big sort of theme throughout this movie.
0: I got big opinions here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, happy to talk about it, because I think it's something that, is hugely popular, but is also um I think there's a lot of skepticism around it. I'll just say that. So it, it is, I will say typically they do have a fairly large presence in treatment uh settings like the one that we see at the beginning of Beautiful Boy. And in some ways it's because A-A-N-A, Al Anon and Naranon for families, it's a really easy support and and like I, I will say Um, like adjunctive service so even if it's not the focus of treatment or the primary way that you're trying to treat addiction just having it as part of the community let's say is is a benefit to people because the program that I worked in you would have members of the community actually come into the program and share their stories share their experience even being willing to become sponsors for people who are still in treatment so Whatever you think about AA and NA, I've seen the value that people who have success and have experienced success can offer to those people who are still in treatment.
0: So, so then you're, you're pro, it sounds like you're a big proponent for NA and AA.
1: Well, with, with the caveat being it's not enough by itself.
0: Okay. I, I guess my big, I have big issues being that, and this is not uh, for or against anybody's, way they believe or not. But I just think it's unfair to people that don't, uh, because I I think the last, isn't the last step in like NA is that you have to give yourself up to Christianity or something like that.
1: Well, it's, it's generic. It's your higher power, whatever you identify that to be.
0: Okay. And, and this isn't like saying like, Oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. What I'm saying is that as, as a people, not everyone feels that way. So being inclusive, I'm uncomfortable saying that everyone should it like a treatment facility should say everyone has to go through this program.
1: Yeah, no, I totally get that. And I think that is a big turnoff for people, the sort of perception that it's like a spiritual or religious program. And, you know, I've worked with people who identify as atheists and things and and in that sense, they're very opposed to this sort of approach. But what I always tell them is that you can sort of take whatever you can from a, a resource like AA or NA, even if that's just a place to go to on nights in which I would find myself drinking, and leave the rest. And there are a lot of, you'll hear a lot of sayings in AA and NA like that, where, you know, if they can help you, you're, they welcome you. So they're not going to judge you or kick you out because you don't worship a specific god or higher power. And frankly, there there are similar programs, you know, sort of without the spiritual component that sort of offer these same benefits. So
0: kind of like the steps, like steps yes. minus the last step. Yep. OK, OK. Totally makes sense. And, and like, I think the steps are valuable, but I just that's what I was thinking. Like, if it's an inclusive thing, I think that just makes it hard on some people.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I work with people who identify their higher power as Mother Nature. Or I don't know if you're familiar with the flying spaghetti monster, which is like a, love that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so all of that stuff, and and none of that, none of those beliefs are going to be excluded from participation in AA and NA. So I, I always try to make people aware of that.
0: Okay, so I wanted to talk about David. Sure. And and what your thoughts on David were, and and I, so he blew me away as a father. And and I know that you kind of were screaming at him there at the beginning about his initial reaction. For me, just as a parent looking at him, like I couldn't hold that against him because people don't know how to react. Like they they don't know what to do or what to say. Like they're not they're not trained. You know what I mean? True. And he did, at least the way the movie portrays it, he did rebound from that very quickly. As far as what this movie showed, like I have in not another movie, I don't think I've ever seen like a better visual description of love. Hmm. Uh I mean this this was like the the most unconditional love I've ever seen in a movie. The way I feel about my kids is I like I felt that in the screen when I was watching that. He, throughout the whole movie, just, I mean, he sticks by his side, even when it's tough love. He's, to me, that was, he was still on his side. He does get to a point where he says he can't help him anymore, but that's because he's trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm wondering if, from your side of the things, and I'm speaking from the parent side, that I was stunned by him, taken back, and like, oh my gosh, if only I could be that kind of a parent to my kid and just be there for them no matter what. But I'm wondering if when you're watching it and you said there was a lot of no's, don't do that, like, you know, where could David have steered things in a different direction, do you think? Was he was he too unconditional about things?
1: So no, it's and I should I should qualify that previous statement with even when they were oh no's, it was also followed up with but well, I mean, I kind of get why he did that. Like okay. even even okay. okay, like I understand him. I should say, you know, I, it's not that I uh, judge the the approach that he took. You know, because I, I do, I do understand it. Because I've worked with parents like David Chef, where they they are not going to give up on their child. They are going to attempt every sort of different uh, uh treatment and approach and you know, look for them on the street and calling hospitals and morgues and all those sorts of things and these are sad and scary but true to life things yeah. that parents sometimes have to do when they're at these sort of um breaking points.
0: And things that David did in real life like call yes. if if uh Nick was missing for a couple of days, he would call hospitals and morgues. Yes. Just to make sure. Yep. I mean, well, like when I said this movie was heartbreaking and and you said it earlier it really did look at this from David's perspective mostly. Yeah. And I mean, I can't even imagine the struggle. I think, I think for me, this movie was important because this didn't show how horrible it was to be addicted to drugs. This showed how horrible it was, not even how horrible, but how hard it was to love somebody that's addicted to drugs.
1: Yeah. I mean, no question. And I think if 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 anything as I'm going through my notes, you know, with my thoughts about David, the only thing that I'm like, "Oh man, David, what are you doing?" is that there was a scene where he like pulls something out of his own wallet and snorts, I think cocaine.
0: No, it was meth. Was it meth? Yeah, 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 it's meth. You can tell because the crystals are larger. Okay,
1: that's fair. I don't know why I know that, Ryan. Well, no, I I you're probably right, but I I wanted it to not be crystal because that it just seemed like, how could you make such a terrible decision? Not that it's, you know, cocaine would still be bad, but, um. I mean, no, yeah.
0: even, even I was like, I mean, I was worried about him. He does. So that's meth. He snorts meth. And at the same time, I had two feelings about it. I thought, oh my God, what a great dad. He snorts this meth. He goes out and he's like, he's basically being like a detective. David goes out and he's on the streets talking to other addicts to get his son's perspective cuz he wants to understand him so badly. Mhm, yep. To the point where he tracks down and gets a little tiny baggie and goes home, you know, he snorts that. And I where I was like, "Oh man, you know, he just wants to understand his son." At the same time, I was instantly like, "He's going to be addicted to drugs now." Right. And, yeah. and there, there was would, very
1: little upside to that decision.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was, what did you think was it you were probably screaming? I'm sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, and look, I, I totally understand wanting to understand what your, your child is going through, you know, trying to be able to almost in some way, like share an experience. So you get a, a different perspective on why this is so hard for him, but that's not the best way to do it. Maybe just tried, and And this is, and, and, you know, I'm sure their relationship was more complex than the way it was portrayed in the movie, but every attempt at an emotional connection that David made, it always came across to me as him basically saying to Nick, you're better than this. Really? Well, yes. And and that's me saying that knowing that that's how Nick was taking it. I don't know. I'm sure that was not David's intention, but it, it all had this feeling of you've got such great potential. And what about college? And, and and that obviously shifts at a certain point, but all these sort of attempts to connect with his son, you know, have this, this sort of veneer of this shouldn't be happening. And, and this is something that I tell my parents uh, that I work with and not my, my personal parents, the parents of patients that I work with should statements are judgments, right? Your, Your children will take them that way. So if you tell them, they shouldn't be doing something, that's fine. You can you can want that. You can believe that. But when you tell them that, they're going to hear, you know, a, a certain amount of judgment from that statement. So I always try to shift it to, you know, next time I want or I would like you to blank. So now it's setting positive uh, intention for the future and not pass judgment on their behavior.
0: You know, and to your point there, Nick even said uh two different times in the movie when he was saying he was going to get better and go to rehab and clean up for everybody, during some of his first attempts, two different times he said, uh, one he said, uh, I'm doing this for you. And yep. then the other time said, I want them to be proud of me. Yep. So his recovery at those points had nothing to do with himself. And that's where I was instantly like, he's he's nowhere near ready for this.
1: Yep. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, the other big thing, you know, as we look at this relationship is that, and this is a big thing I harp on with parents is David sort of repeatedly asks, why, why are you doing this? Why are you, um, not necessarily, doesn't outright say, why are you like this? But it, that comes across. That's such a hard question for someone in addiction, because as Nick sort of states, he knows why but he's ashamed of it and he doesn't want to say it out loud obviously but but also like harping on the why is not what focuses on the sort of future change it focuses on the like what happened to you or what did i do wrong or what did you do wrong and none of that is really useful when when we're trying to to make positive changes
0: okay we're going to take a quick break and then and then we're going to be right back and we're just going to continue this conversation but we'll be right back
1: You are listening to Pop Psych 101, a show discussing mental health and popular culture through two perspectives, a patient and a therapist. We explore the accuracies of how mental illness is portrayed in movies, books, and television for better or worse.
0: All right. And we are back. All right, Ryan. So we covered, I think, a whole bunch of this as far as the important parts of the movie up front. Uh, A lot about how David reacted, Nick, in his initial getting into rehab, uh, his struggles with his addiction, his family dynamics, and all that kind of stuff. But one thing that really jumped out to me that we hadn't talked about yet was, and I I think this can be true and, and I'm wondering, was he was addicted to methamphetamines. But what struck me with Nick was, in this, there's a scene in the movie when he's going through his journal, and this is just kind of proof in my head, but I thought it anyway. You see, he had written down very. There's a little he wrote down in the corner of one page. It said, "Can't find meth here, or like meth's hard to find in this town, but uh, so I scored some heroin." Mm -hmm. And so that just kind of like confirmed what I was thinking was, and I'm wondering if this is true for a lot of addicts. Is it's not about maybe the particular drug they're on, but it's more about not being sober
1: a hundred percent, yeah, I mean, you know, we know from other things that Nick Chef has done and written that he did not like himself, he even hated himself. So what the drugs did for him was they made him feel this different euphoria. Um actually, another quote that sort of echoes this from his journal was that you know he's he writes. When I discovered drugs, my world went from black and white to technicolor. I can never give that up. So I tell people what they want to hear. Right. So it's this experience that it's not necessarily about crystal meth, exactly what you said. It's about the drugs doing something for him and his view of himself and the world that he can't find anywhere else. And we also know um, that they don't depict this in Beautiful Boy, but we know it from um, Nick Schaaf's memoirs that... He goes so far as to as to prostitute himself. Yeah, he did. So, you know, he's really looking for love and 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 positive self-view any way that he can get it.
0: Which just seems and this is me, even though I did read a lot about the true like behind the scenes stuff. Yep. But just going from the accuracy of the portrayal, that seems weird or or just like, but the love is there. Like your dad and even, like, out, they didn't show it a lot, but I'm sure his mother and his stepmother, his dad, like, you are loved. But he said, like, he he prostituted out uh, as a male prostitute. He said he's a straight male. He would have preferred women, but it was too hard to do that. Like, women, you know, they didn't go out to get uh, guys for prostitutes. So he had to do men, but he said that was fine mm-hmm. because he was just, Looking for someone that wanted him, yep, you know, and loved him, and I'm just, uh, I don't know. You feel bad, you? Feel, I mean, you feel horrible,
1: right? So I mean, you said, you know, but Nick, your your parents do love you, but I I go back to the divorce and this like original wound for Nick, and it's a cliche, but there are reasons that that whole thing of like, you know, your mom and I are getting divorced, and it's not your fault. There's a reason that that's a cliche, and it's because kids automatically i would say if not 100 of the time a large majority of the time put the blame on themselves for their family's uh conflict or chaos really absolutely why (laughs) because and especially at the age of four you can tell them anything you want but they don't have the emotional awareness to look at to look at a relationship and say oh you know, they just don't get along. They're better off apart. No, they look at their two parents that they love and they're separating and that's all that they see and understand. So then they look at themselves and say, well, why, you know, they both say they love me. Why, why is this not still not working? So it must be me. So it's, it's just, it's so common. I've worked with, you know, and I don't have the the statistics, but I, I'm sure they're stark You know, the percentage of people who end up with mental health issues or addiction issues like divorce parents are a huge predictor of that. Just point blank.
0: I mean, it's just sometimes you sit there and think and it's just and if we talk about this all the time about, you know, stigmas and people's lack of awareness of mental illness or mental health issues. But then you think about stuff like this and you just you see how like fragile people are like in their psyche. It's just, you're so fragile. Well, it's really, it's really,
1: yeah, exactly. It's really how fragile children are, you know, at the age of four, you don't have resilience. You don't have, uh, insight into why and how relationships work. All you have is this is how I feel and this is how I see. And then you draw your own conclusions. So it's just, it's unfortunate and it's, it's sad, but that's why I was on my soapbox before is like kids, so badly need to be protected when there's this any kind of chaos or or trauma in and around their life that th- that's the best way to prevent these kind of problems down the line is to get them outside support. You can love your child and your your ex can love your child and that the, the divorce itself can be perfect and amicable, but the child's still going to have thoughts about themselves and why their family doesn't work.
0: Wow. And that that just gets me thinking about as far as you can still love your kids and make these actions, but they're going to think something different. There's a scene in the movie and David does something and it's totally, from my perspective, out of love, his need to react if something's about to happen. So Nick goes through a period of recovery and it's like, He said like 438 days is like a year and a half or something. It's a long time. And he's doing really well. And he goes, he's actually, he goes to LA is where he goes to rehab. And he stays with his mom for a while after he gets out. And then he comes finally back to visit his dad. And while he's visiting, he goes out. I think he says he goes to a support meeting, comes back from a support meeting. He's clearly like the way the movie portrays it, clearly sober. He looks healthy and fresh, and and he sits right down and talks to his dad. He's not avoiding eye contact. You know all the movie signs that he's feeling good, and his dad asks to drug testing. Now, just from what you're just saying, like in my mind, he's doing this out of love. If you have messed up, I need to be here for you. But I, I was, I'm pretty sure you have big opinions, or or at least thought thought maybe this is not the right path to go. And I was wondering what you thought.
1: Yeah. So. The only I don't in general, I don't have a problem with parents wanting to drug test their kids, especially in a case like David and Nick Schiff, where you've been through so many ups and downs. You you want some semblance of security if you can get it. But the, the problem that I have with the way it's portrayed, and we we don't know if this is the sort of true to life version or not, but the the fact that it's sort of a surprise drug test, if you're going to have an expectation that that you could be drug tested by your parents. You want to know, you know, if I come home a minute past curfew, I'm going to be drug tested and I'm I'm signing up for that. I understand it and I'm on board. You know, whereas in this case, uh, Nick comes home, as you said, feeling fine, looking good, has a reasonable story about why he was out. And then as far as we can tell in the movie, this is like the first time that his dad has drug tested him. And Nick kind of takes it on the shin. He he says he gets it. I get um, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you can also see this sort of pained look of like, like, really? Like, you just acknowledged I have a year and a half clean. Can't we just say I had a great meeting, like, good night. So it's just tough. So I, if you're going to drug test your kids, you know, have a clear expectation of when and why. And I, I shouldn't say, it doesn't have to be when, because, you know, Certain parents are going to want to have random drug tests. That's fine. But have your child understand that maybe you will sometimes give them a random drug test and they're signing up for that too. So I just want there to be as clear expectations as possible. So that way the the sort of pained look and pained experience that Nick experiences doesn't have to be part of this equation.
0: He he drug tests him. And then the next I think it's the next day he he relapses. He calls his sponsor and his sponsor tries to get him to to not relapse, but he ends up relapsing. Do you think that the night before had anything to do with that, like the drug test thing?
1: It certainly could have. I mean, as we talked before, you know, Nick sort of sees himself and and constantly feels like he's disappointing his father. So even when he's clean, his father doesn't trust him. I mean, his he says, "I trust you. We just need proof," which is like. Uh... you could possibly say exactly he calls him out on it right and and i agree with nick you know it's like if you want to drug test me just say like i i want to drug test you like i don't trust you yeah exactly and and i think nick would have responded better to honesty than this sort of like contradictory statement so there's no question for me that nick was affected by that um expression from his father I don't think the drug test by itself was like the huge trigger, but the sort of emotional interaction we know is like a sticking point for Nick.
0: Yeah. And just to take things to real life real quick. So that's what happens in the movie. He, he does the drug test. The next day he relapses. So we're looking at it from that perspective here on the show. But in real life, what actually happened, David Sheff had like a brain aneurysm or something it, it wasn't an aneurysm but he had like a major medical like emergency issue in his brain and shortly thereafter in real life Nick Sheft relapsed and after the year and a half so that's actually about the time period when that actually happened so as far as relapsing i understand relapse but they say in this movie like three or four times like relapse is a part of recovery and i'm like what is relapse and how how does that work and Is that
1: true? I don't know. So in my experience, relapse is part of recovery, Um, but it's such a hard concept to use, especially when you're talking to your child, because you're basically saying you screwed up, but you're supposed to screw up. This is is part of getting better is like screwing up. So it's just, it's imbued with all of this negative stuff.
0: Well, yeah, and it gives them an opportunity to say, well, I get a couple chances to go back.
1: Oh, for sure, and that's why you know, and they do say relapse is part of recovery in the rooms of AA and NA. But it's such a hard thing to to be part of your philosophy because it does give you this back door into relapse. Like, well, you know, relapse is part of recovery. I'm gonna take one of my relapses now, and and it absolutely happens all the time. So for me, I when I'm communicating this sentiment. I say relapse is part of recovery, but it doesn't have to be. And and the reason I say that is because in a lot of ways it may not feel like a choice, but it's absolutely a choice. So you have the opportunity to make the choice that relapse is not going to be a part of your recovery. This is again when I work with people in addiction on a regular basis, because you need to instill this belief in yourself or this desire that even if relapse is part of recovery in general, it doesn't have to be a, a a automatic outcome for you
0: i mean yeah this we agree here very like wholeheartedly like if you give someone a back door they're gonna take it as soon as they get it like oh yeah you know i'm gonna take my couple of black balls for sure so right
1: yeah and and the scene leading up to that relapse you know they sort of show a flashback like nick is almost thinking about when he graduated high school and all this sort of promise and 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 hope that he might have had at that time so you can kind of see he's struggling emotionally balancing sort of those thoughts and feelings with the reality that his dad just drug tested him and obviously he's not living up to those lofty expectations he had when he graduated high school so for sure this is a complicated relapse for him
0: well as far as lofty expectations nick has done a lot of things since this time period of his life but when the movie ends and like I said in the synopsis, we don't, we don't see, like we've talked about in a lot of the things we've covered, they do like this quick wrap-up of everything's okay now, everyone's smiling, they're all better. They don't do that here, which I actually liked as a movie. And they stopped it in a period of his life when he was still knee-deep. What they don't get into and what you're still like pleading is, can we please see what recovery looks like?
1: yeah, so I, I exactly. we talked about this the last episode. Like finally, I think an honest and realistic portrayal of this sort of messy nature of recovery from addiction or mental health, where you know, you can say, Yeah, this guy's going back into treatment, but there are no guarantees here. And we know from real life that Nick, sort of following the events of the movie, did have relapses, you know, when this book came out and when they're on the book tour and probably other times as well. You know, they they sort of do the epilogue um, titles. They say that Nick has eight years clean, I guess, as of the publication of this movie. But we we don't know, and we can't know. Um, nor is is permanent recovery really promised. So here we are, sort of left at the end of this movie, thinking, man, they've been through a lot. I I hope that that these lessons are sort of locked in. But we also know from reality that. Even if those lessons are locked in, that doesn't mean that someone's going to stay clean forever.
0: I mean it's it's a hard fact to come to terms with. Yep. And you know, like you were saying, Nick Chef, following all this stuff, has relapsed numerous times even after he was successful. You know, in different areas of his life, from what I've heard from people I've read about, uh, even some people I'm close to, that no matter how long it's been, no matter how long. I mean, it could be years and years and years. The compulsion to if the drug or whatever it is that you're addicted to is put in front of you, like that compulsion still exists. Like that part of your brain, that never goes away.
1: Yeah, sad but true. That's been my experience in working in the field as well. You know, I've had people who had uh, over a decade or decades clean that, that relapsed due to one reason or another.
0: Which is, for me, like, the thing that I want to scream at people to not start, especially the heavy stuff, obviously, but this really addictive patterns of things, because you've just made the rest of your life so difficult, Mm -hmm. even if you recover. Yep. Now, the rest of your life is always going to have this little bit of, you're going to have this thing in your head that's going to just be this small, like, torturous thing, and i don't know
1: just don't just don't start well yeah right it it becomes this you know this thing in your brain this demon you know in, in na and aa they hear all these different sort of phrases so and and they're they're phrases for a reason that the reality of recovery from addiction is that much like this movie it's not linear you know there are ups and downs and bumps and bruises and And I think that's why I really appreciate the movie and the way this is depicted, because even though there's this sort of hopeful ending, there's also this acknowledgement that, you know, addiction is not something that you beat. It's not something that you uh, are cured of. It's just this thing that you have to live with essentially forever.
0: I mean, just I can attest to it. And I'll tell you why. And this is a much lighter version than anything. And so I'm not trying to like relate or say that I have this kind of an issue, but I'm a cigarette smoker. I have quit several times. Uh, Even last year, I quit for five months, even in the fifth, and I smoke right now. So that just goes to show you, Mm -hmm. even in the fifth month, when all the all the uh, like physical addiction was completely like di- no traces of anything that my body needed was left every single day i was consumed with the thought of it even 5 months later yeah. so i mean it, it, and it's uh, it's almost a torture so it just is like i couldn't even imagine going to this level of things
1: yeah yeah and, and ser- scary and sad and and that's why you know this this movie is so intense and and dark is because it's it's real this is what it's like for both the person going through it and for the family there's no hiding from it
0: right and, and i think that's a good point for us to say uh if you haven't listened to the show before we always do our ratings uh Ryan does a one out of 5 somethings on the accuracy of the portrayal of the movie, or of what we're covering, and the pop culture we're covering that week, and then I rate one out of five stars on the awesomeness, uh, or not of the movie. Uh Ryan, what did you think of the movie?
1: So uh this week I did one out of I did out of five everything's because uh, oh the, man, don't the make the sort me of cry uh, right now. Well, well, I I liked that. That was something that I liked is that this sort of um uh consistent sort of goodbye that David and Nick Chef have is they, you know, when when Nick is younger, his dad says to him, I love you more than anything. Or, I love you more than everything. And then their goodbye just becomes like everything, everything they say to each other. So they just, out of,
0: they just say everything.
1: Yeah, that's right. So out of five everythings, Mike, I am happy to give this movie five out of five everythings. Woo! So congratulations. And I mean, and and for good reason, this is obviously a personal work of two people who have lived and continue to live through this very real problem. And as a result, it was depicted as well as you can depict the reality of addiction or a mental health issue. So I, I right. great, greatly appreciate the portrayal here. And, and I would gladly recommend it to anyone who wanted to know what addiction was like from the perspective, especially of a perspective of the family, but even from the perspective of um, someone going through it themselves.
0: You know, but we've covered a true, you know, like a, a story written by a person from yes. their true story perspective, and it did not get the five for the five somethings. That's true. So that that just speaks to I think the fact that this was—they both wrote books about it—so we got both perspectives like rolled into one. But the fact that they—it seemed because as far as the reading I did on it, they were like pretty honest, and then the movie was like very, very close to what they said. Yeah. Okay, so now I got to do one out of five stars on awesomeness, and this movie was awesome, so it gets a five stars. (laughs) Uh, you, you know, and I'm going, uh, this is not like, I'm not saying it was like great because I loved addiction. I'm saying it was great because as a movie, it did all the right things that a movie's supposed to do. I, this movie is two hours long, almost to the dot. And I cried for an hour of it at least. And that's because like, I'm a softy and I cry at the drop of a hat during a movie. <laughs> Uh, which is weird because I don't cry easy in real life, but at a movie, I'll cry in an instant. But uh, yeah, the parent, the love that David had for his son, no matter what, there was a, I mean, I was sobbing, just like snot, the whole thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you're right, so it's a two-hour runtime, and to me, and I've talked about, obviously, as I watch this from a therapist's perspective, it felt like four hours. It was just like, oh, my God, how is this still going on?
0: (laughs) Not Um, me.
1: And and that's not to say I didn't like the movie. I liked it very much. But just like it was it was painful in that because of all the things that I've talked about.
0: Yeah, because it was it was like a negative experience. Yeah. Yeah. Bringing up you worked in it. It brought up a lot of things that, you know, you even you even got away from the field All right, all right. Well, guys, that does it for us today. As usual, we have to thank Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com for most of the music that we use on the show. Uh, You can look at our show notes to see uh, the specific songs that we use. And uh, this has been an intense one, but we do think this episode was really important. So hopefully, you guys got something out of this you can take home with you. But Ryan, uh, thank you so much for talking with me every week.
1: Thank you, Mike. It was a great one. Okay, so another intense conversation here on Pop Psych 101, this time about addiction in the movie Beautiful Boy. We focused more on this specific story of addiction than what addiction is in general, but there are some important takeaways for anyone dealing with similar problems for themselves or family members. First of all, even though treatment of addiction is acknowledged as something that has a low success rate, recovery and behavior change are possible. Nick Sheff said in a recent interview that when he finally started listening to what his counselors and psychiatrists and people in meetings were telling him to do, he was able to get to a point where he didn't totally hate himself. It can be frustrating to see people resist this advice, but as Nick's parents and others support him, he gradually accepts the changes he needs to make, and you or your loved one can as well. Secondly, if you or someone you love is showing signs of addiction, consistency and communication are keys to helping them and protecting yourself. Blame and judgment are the enemy of progress when it comes to recovery. So just being solid in your boundaries and support goes a long way. One of the best things we see David Chef do is when Nick begs to come home after a relapse, David actually says no. This is David setting a boundary that both he and Nick need. And in the movie, it helps lead Nick to a path of recovery. Finally, we talked a bit about AA and NA, and I want to emphasize that people shouldn't let their preconceived notions about treatment or support groups stop them from getting the help that they need. Willingness to try different types of support or even treatment can go a long way to finding something that works for you or your family member. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you, as always, to my co-host and executive producer, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and YouTube at poppsych101. We are specifically on YouTube for our fans who may be hard of hearing. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Poppsych 101 is not only a podcast but also a radio show. You can find us on the real-life radio station on Dash Radio. If Dash Radio is not installed on your vehicle, you can download their app on Android or iOS. For the podcast, we are on all major distribution channels, so please rate, review, and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelsad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.